the new generation of legislators and healthcare policymakers, they are coming in thinking that this is a norm. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is the Moving the Needle podcast. Today joining us is Anna Poliak, who's our Senior Director of State Government Affairs. Uh, we're going to talk about advocacy, advocacy, and advocacy, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, what's happening at the state association level. We'll talk about what the trends are, where they're going, what to expect, and how to position yourself for success in the future. Well, thanks for joining us, Anna. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about your background and the work that you do here at the AANA? Sure, absolutely. Glad to be here. So I've been at the ANA for almost 11 years, um, and I work pretty closely with state associations on removing barriers to uh, CRNA practice. Um, prior to coming to the ANA, I worked in uh, public health sector. So I worked as uh, associate chief counsel for the Illinois Department of Public Health. I also worked in uh, private practice uh, as a corporate compliance attorney. And before going to law school, I actually worked in the operating room. So I was pretty familiar with delivery of anesthesia services um, when I came here. So it was kind of like coming home when I joined the ANA. So you've, you've been with us since 2011, right? Yep. You've seen the organization for well, almost, I guess, what, 10 years now. And you've, seen, you've, been, you've had a great opportunity to see what's happening at the state level when it comes to advocacy. What's different today than maybe 10 years or so ago? What do you see that's different? Oh my goodness, what isn't different, right? <laughs> you know, I think that our environment overall um, is changing. You know, what um, we see in healthcare policy today is very different from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. The environment is changing to where legislators are realizing that in order to deliver healthcare, they have to remove barriers. If they want to deliver healthcare to their constituents, they have to remove unnecessary outdated barriers. So the opportunity exists today that never existed when I first came to the organization or even five years ago. And I'm just so excited about that because I think it a, gives us a lot of great things we can accomplish, but also things that we can deliver for our members. Yeah. Let's zoom out on that a little bit because I'm interested when you say, you know, the environment has changed and, and you know, what, I, what I'm thinking that you're uh, implying is that, look, I mean, there's the amount that we're spending on healthcare in this country is what, something like 18% of gross domestic product going up uh, pretty, pretty quickly. And that's, that's unsustainable. And that's pressurizing the environment in which CRNAs are working, meaning that you know, reimbursement levels are going down to hospitals, uh, to health systems, uh, and, and to providers. And, and so that's created an environment in which folks are looking at cost in a way that they haven't in the past. And now that's translating to all kinds of activity, some of which you're seeing at the state level, right? So we're seeing an uptick in legislative and regular, regulatory activity. How, how do you see that playing out in terms of the way that nurse anesthetists at the state association level are, are responding and reacting to all of that? You know, I think the environment now and all of the changes, disruptions created by COVID are presenting an unprecedented opportunity um, at the state level. You know, when COVID first happened, initially we had a lot of negative outcomes for our members when elective procedures were being suspended. But now as we're coming back to you know, more of a stable environment or things are stabilizing, 
we're starting to see state legislators and state leaders recognize that money is tight in order to deliver care they have to allow providers to practice. So, you know, when COVID initially happened, the first wave of executive orders, you know, dealt with closing medical procedures and suspending medical procedures and so forth. The second wave dealt with allowing providers to work to the full extent of their training and education. So a lot of unnecessary restrictions were suspended, right? Mm. So now, a year later, we are recognizing that many state leaders saw that in order to deliver care and deliver it effectively fast, they have to suspend those outdated requirements. So now we're working pretty hard to translate it into our action at the state level. You know, literally thousands of lives were saved by removing barriers to practice during COVID. So these changes, unfortunately, were temporary. So now we're working pretty hard and our goal is to make these changes permanent. So CRNAs at the state level are recognizing the opportunity and we're trying to convince policymakers to change these temporary you know, suspensions and turn them into permanent permanent lawmaking. So that's the opportunity at the state level, and that's what our state leaders have been doing, and we've been working with them pretty closely to assist them with that. Yeah, and, and obviously because we, we see the value in removing unnecessary barriers, <clears throat> our physician colleagues agree with that too, right? I mean, they, we're not seeing any resistance at all. No. Modernizing. <laughs> no? None whatsoever. I oh. I wouldn't. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Okay. So you know, obviously, a lot of opposition because there's money involved, right? It, and unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's the economics of it. You know, that mm. kind of speaks. You know, you know, after the crisis passes, there will continue to be chronic problems. Um, you know, chronic healthcare problems at the state level. You know, the cost, access to care, and, and so on. And while the legislators recognize that the only way to solve that problem is to remove those barriers. The opposition is there and, you know, it's it's business. At the end of the day, I don't think, I, I want to say it's not personal, it's business because there's a lot of money on the table. And while I firmly believe that there's enough work out there to keep everyone busy and there's so much shortage in access to care, unfortunately, our physician par- counterparts are not necessarily in agreement with that. And we are we're finding that the opposition at the state level is fierce and it is very difficult to move our agenda forward. We're succeeding because, again, the legislators have shown us during crisis that they recognize the value of CRNAs, but we're definitely dealing with a lot of opposition at the state level. Yeah, let's let's double click on that because when you say opposition, there's there's the opposition to, let's say, a state association is moving a bill forward that would, let's say, remove physician supervision or physician presence or something like that. There's a resistance to that bill, Right. Right. But then there's another way of resisting, and which is more in terms of retaliation, meaning that the organized medicine at the state level would say, okay, we see this, and therefore we're going to do something about it to put you on your back foot. What does that look like? What are you seeing there? You know, it's interesting. A colleague of mine, and as Jay, she calls it a three-pronged approach. Hmm. For instance, I'll give you some examples. We can bring in a bill to remove supervision, and it's moving forward very successfully, as we have uh, in a number of states this year, actually. Again, I think partially due to opportunities created by COVID. At the same time, we will see our physician counterparts introduce um, other bills, such as introducing supervision where it doesn't exist, introducing restrictive pain management bills, introducing uh, title protection bills. Again, anything to restrict our practice, and frequently, I personally believe it's not so much that they think they can get these bills through because some of them, I'll be honest with you, you know, I've been practicing health law for a very long time. They're gibberish. They're not, Mm. it's not very good law, you know, and I know they have lawyers on staff who draft this. It's not very good language, but what they do, 
they dilute the effort of our associations to move forward positive legislation. And I think that's where we're seeing the biggest impact because there's only so much manpower and so much cloud that, you know, any lobbyist of the state association and there's so much manpower that a state association has. So we're moving forward a positive bill while at the same time having to fight, you know, 10 other bills that maybe legally don't make any sense. It still takes away resources and manpower. And that's where I think, unfortunately, our physician colleagues are, I don't want to say successful, but they're certainly taking away a chunk of our good efforts to move positive legislation forward. Yeah, and that's a strategy to be perfectly candid that if we were if we were working with them that we would be advocating for too, right? I mean, it, it is like, it, it's smart, meaning that, look, if you're in a state and you're moving towards modernizing the scope of practice, and, and that is the trajectory healthcare is going, right? I mean, yeah. whether it's at the practice level or at the state level, or even at the federal level relative to reimbursement, that's where things are going. So how do we slow that down? How do we muddy the water? Well, let's throw some legislation at them and have them react, right? And that That's usually right. takes the shape of stuff like, uh, you know, title protection, uh, anesthesiologist assistance in legislation, additional supervision legislation. And it, it is distracting and it's disconcerting, right? If you're at the state association level and, and, and you're leading an organization and now you have to respond to two or three pieces of legislation, that's tough. So what are you seeing in terms of states? How, how are they responding to that? And, and what words of wisdom do you have for them when they find themselves in the crosshair of something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And we see it pretty frequently, and not just in our position introducing bills that don't make sense and distract from our efforts, but also the bills that we're moving forward, the questions that they ask of legislators have nothing to do with that bill. Again, they do anything to kind of to distract us. So the advice that we frequently give to our state association is don't get distracted. You know, I'll give you an example. Just earlier this week, we had a bill hearing in a state where the opposition so the bill has to do with supervision. We're trying to remove supervision. The opposition comes in to testify, and they are telling state legislators, well, you know, after CRNAs remove supervision, they are going to try to do prescriptive authority. So the legislators are automatically talking about opioids and other things, again, distracting completely from what the intent of the bill is. And I always tell our state leaders, redirect the conversation. Redirect the conversation to what's important to what you're trying to accomplish and don't kind of, you know, don't bite um, on that attempt to try to distract the conversation. And, you know, I'll quote my uh, dear colleague and friend, Ralph Cole here, evidence and economics. We got the studies to show that CRNAs are safe. We have the evidence to show that CRNAs are cost-effective. You know, in many states where these um, temporary removal of supervision have been in place for a year, we have data to show that CRNAs provided safe and effective care during the pandemic. I'll give an example. New York is probably one of the most restrictive states in the country where CRNAs aren't even recognized, right? We don't have title protection in New York. New York was the first state to remove supervision, to suspend supervision during COVID. And now it's been there for a year. So we have data to show that CRNAs are safe and cost-effective providers. And that's what I tell our state association, stick to the facts. You know, when I was doing trial law early in my career, I was always told, don't try your opponent's case. And that's Mm -hmm. what I tell our CRNAs, stick to your talking points, redirect the conversation. We got the winning arguments on our side. And if we stick to them, I firmly believe that we'll be able to move our agenda forward. Where do you see this going, Anna? You know, we're talking about an uptick in in legislation and and some of it's COVID related. And I think some of it was probably moving anyways before COVID, but I think COVID has accelerated it, right? Where do you, you know, if, you, if you're looking into the future and you say, okay, this is what it's going to look like across, you know, every state is, is different, right? You know, politically, culturally, uh, and, and there will be variability for sure. But 
what do you, what's the arc here? What's, what, what direction is, is this going and what does that mean for nurse anesthetists at the clinical level? I see a lot of opportunity. I'll be honest with you, early, during early COVID times, I wasn't quite sure what the next year was going to look like. And I think you and I've had this conversation. I was actually pleasantly surprised to see how many states are able to move the agenda forward. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I think COVID changed that in a positive way for CRNAs because legislators now see the value of removing barriers. So again, my glasses usually have empty because I think of all the worst things that can happen as we introduce bills. But in this particular case, I would like to say that it's actually pretty full because I just see a lot of good traction at the state level, as well as the facility level from what we're hearing uh, from CRNAs. So I really do think if we bring the legislation forward, we talk to legislators, we educate them on our issues, I really do see a lot of opportunity uh, for our states to remove barriers that, again, they're, they're ancient. Those barriers, some of those nursing and those practice acts have been written in 1940s and 1950s, you know, mm. when the world was a very different place, you know, as my kids say, the dinosaurs still roamed the earth, you know, they still think the dinosaurs roamed the earth when I was born, you know, but mm -hmm. um, that's a conversation for another day. So I think yeah. there's a lot of opportunity. And I really do think now is the time for us to capitalize on that opportunity. Yeah. Where do you, how do we make this real for someone? You know, we've been talking about legislation and regulation and, and, and certainly that's, interesting and relevant if you're in state leadership and you're responsible for, for moving things forward for the profession. But there, I'm sure there are people who are listening and thinking, well, what does this mean for me? You know, why, why would I even be interested in, in any of this? It seems like a lot of work and it seems like a big hassle. And oh, by the way, uh, this, someone might take this out on me at the clinical level. Why, it, how do we help connect the dots in terms of what we're trying to work on at the federal level and, and, and at the state level and how that makes CRNA's lives better? You know, I think that, again, this is just me, from my position because I work so much with state associations and also with CRNAs at the facility level because we actually get a lot of CRNAs contact us with questions about scope of practice at the facility level. I think it's easier than folks think it is. All they need to do is get out there and tell their story. And it's really no different than telling patient and pre-op about this is how I am, this is what I do. If they start doing it at the local level, at their community, at their church, talk to the legislators if there's an opportunity, they will start building that foundation that ultimately we will need to move the needle forward. So I think starting small, not everybody's meant to be a great government relations leader. Some folks are just happy going to work every day, but where they can make a huge difference is by telling CRNA's story. You know, I, when I first came to the organization, I was told that for years, CRNAs were the best kept secret. <laughs> that doesn't help us. The more our stories yeah. out there, the easier it is to move the needle. So. If you think politically at your facility level, it's not the right time or the right opportunity to get involved in government relations, there's still a lot of opportunity to move the needle forward. And what it results in is really opportunity for the providers. Eventually, the pay will be greater. You'll be able to do more services. You'll have a lot more job opportunities. So it really translates very easily in your everyday work environment. So start telling the story for somebody who's not wanting to be a great state leader today. Maybe you'll get there tomorrow. But for today, just start telling your story. I hate to say this to anybody who listen. At the end of the day, you'll be surprised um, how many connections you can make and the wonderful foundation that you can lay for future efforts. Again, whether it be at your facility, at the state level, or the federal level. So that's kind of um, how I would connect those dots for individuals who are just yeah. start, starting to kind of listen to what it means, you know, to be involved in government relations, but not quite there. Yeah. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about in the 15 minutes or so that we've been together is about good stuff that's happening. Right. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a, and there is a lot of good stuff happening. 
even in the context of this awful pandemic, right? And, and we talk about you know, Rahm Emanuel, who used to be the mayor of Chicago, was the chief of staff of uh, Barack Obama and did other things too. He said, he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Meaning that, you know, when there is a lot of disruption in your environment, it presents opportunity for people who have the capacity to take advantage of it. And we're seeing a lot of that, right? And, and it's not just in the field of, of advocacy for nurse anesthetists. There's this immense amount of disruption and there's, a, and there's an immense amount of people who are positioning themselves accordingly. And, and that's great. And, and I, I wonder, though, the flip side of that. You know, I play a game with my girls called Rose Thorn Bud. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they come home from school. And instead of, you know, I ask them, so how was school? And I usually used to get like, it was fine. You know, but now I say, okay, Rose Thorn Bud. And we have real conversations now. And so the rose is, what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of good things going on for nurse anesthetists all across the country. They're really being leveraged in ways uh, they haven't been in the past. And there's a lot of opportunity. What's the thorn here? What's, what's, what, what keeps you up at night? What's, what's concerning? Well, just like we're not letting a good crisis go to waste, neither is opposition, right? Oh. Um, so, <laughs> and this I don't blame them. So I, disappointing. Right? So tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> They're not letting a good crisis uh, go to waste either. Um, so we're seeing a lot more AA bills this year. We're seeing other providers uh, trying to come into the marketplace. Again, not, not a surprise at all, because just in the same way as we tell our story and talk about need for access to care. Uh, there are other stories out there being told. So um, no surprise there. We're also seeing a lot of um, other legislation um, hit, hit you know, the marketplace, hit, hit um, come out of COVID. And we have to be very careful to make sure that it helps CRNAs and doesn't hurt us. So I'll give you an example. We, we're seeing an absolute flood of telehealth legislation coming mm. out of um, states this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we all agree that healthcare does not always have to be where a provider is in the same place as the patient, right? So we all know there's certain components of healthcare that can be delivered through telehealth. However, you know, and historically telehealth has lagged behind tremendously. So now states are playing catch up, but, uh, but the public may not understand an important role that CRNAs can play th- through telehealth because when you think telehealth, you think primary care, CRNAs can also provide certain components of care through telehealth, and we need to make sure that all of the legislation that comes through, and it just this is just an example, CRNAs are not negatively impacted by it. That being said, that any state laws that are being enacted as a result of the pandemic treat different categories of healthcare providers fairly and do not discriminate against any types of professionals, including CRNAs. So anything good that's happening at the state level, we want to make sure we're included, um, and it also includes fair payment for equal work. So a lot of moving parts at the state level. And from our perspective, we want to make sure that anything that moves forward includes us and doesn't negatively impact us. Yeah, I, you know, that, that's interesting, you know, the proliferation of telemedicine. You know, look, I mean, the, I've heard people say that in about seven months, we move seven years forward when it comes to telemedicine. I think that's great, right? I mean, I, I, think, I think that any way that we can make things easier, decrease the friction for people who need the care uh, and, and to get the care as effectively, we should do that. And technology presents that opportunity. And the other side of this is, as nurse anesthetists, of course, we're paranoid. I don't know if you know this or not, Anna, but as well, does this present an opportunity for telesupervision? Meaning, can someone supervise me from, you know, if I'm, let's say I'm practicing in rural Iowa, can someone supervise me from you know, Manhattan, right, from, you know, from their condo? And, and certainly, there, there is a legitimate concern. But what do you see in terms of the risk there? Is that, is that overblown? I mean, is there a real risk? Or is this, is this much to do about nothing? 
Oh, well, did I mention earlier my glasses always have full? I'm that devil's advocate. So it, in my world, your glass no, never overblown. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I always look at it from the perspective of how it can hurt us because I know all the positive stuff. That's easy. The positive stuff is easy. You know, American Association of Nurse Anesthetists is not paying me for the positive stuff because that's easy to see. <laughs> um, my job and the job of my colleagues at SGA is to look for those hidden um Thorns. You guys, yes, you guys are you guys are uh, very you guys are big big downers. <laughs> we, we you guys down. are the negative Nancys. Yes. You know, say the so leaders who, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. who work with me closely. They know. You know, I call them. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything positive because you know the positive stuff about your language. Here's where I think it can go yeah. wrong. So yes. Uh, so no risk is ever overblown. We look at those bills very carefully, every, line by line, word by word, to make sure that there's nothing in there that can allow for telemedicine supervision of CRNAs because that's not the best practice. We know that that's a no-go. And currently, there's no way for a physician anesthesiologist to get reimbursed for it. That's not to say that it won't change in five, 10 years. And we're always looking ahead and thinking, how can the law that's passed today harm us in the future? So we're being very intentional about it and looking at it very carefully and you know, making sure that none of the language includes supervision. And if it does, obviously, we work very closely with state associations to make sure that it's being addressed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, I, you know, I've been in leadership at the ANA for a little bit now, and that's been a, a topic that's come up, you know, every year, multiple times is, you know, what does this mean? What are, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? But there's a lot of things that need to line up. And, you know, one, the market is not designed to reward telesupervision. There is no billing modalities that exist. And so we'd have to create them or someone would have to create them. Right. That's right. Two is it doesn't exactly paint the best picture in terms of the role of physician supervision would, would uh, brings to the table. I mean, if you can supervise somebody, Remotely, do, do, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, you know, I was, so, you know be, what value, what economic value, what quality value does it bring to the system? And, and that's what those are tough arguments. And and I haven't seen anything that, that has indicated that it brings anything other than someone watching you do anesthesia remotely, right? So, right. yeah. But it's one of those things where you know I, I don't want to be dismissive and say there's nothing there because we both know that you know things are evolving and changing at an unprecedented pace, Absolutely. right? So we did Rose, we did Thorn. Let's do Bud. Bud is what you're looking for too, right? So I, right. I know you're a negative Nancy, but I, I want to put your optimistic, uh, optimist hat on and say, okay, looking into the future, what are you excited about? Well, here's where kind of where we are at, at SGA, the government relations. Uh, we took this time during COVID to review and reflect on how we do state advocacy, right? So it's not mm. not completely positive approach, but I'll give you some positive Bud there. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know the, the data shows that. Overall, as a profession, we've been doing a good job removing barriers and regulatory environment for CRNAs is undeniably better right now than it's ever been. Uh, things are improving, and we can, but we can do better. So we identified some internal barriers that can help us go, go from good to great, you know. So something to look forward to and something I think that presents a huge opportunities uh, for us. So we're working to ensure that our state association efforts are in alignment with our national advocacy. We created the ANA State Government Affairs um, National Agenda, and we're working with state associations to have their individual agendas um, aligned with that. Uh, again, each state will do it based on what their current laws are. We have 50 states, different, 50 different scopes of practice, but mm -hmm. it presents a great opportunity for them to cascade from what ANA is doing nationally. Also, you know, uh, time and money and resources are always limited for the ANA, just like any other organization. And we're looking at ways to maximize the value of those resources by utilizing them more efficiently. So that's another um, opportunity for us as an organization. We've created some tools 
to help us analyze the types of healthcare policy interventionals, interventions that we're seeing on a national level and try to determine how we can align our resources to maximize those efforts at the state level. So that's what I'm excited about. And I think our states are in a better position than ever to move the agenda forward. So a lot of interesting and great things are happening in the ANA. And I'm very, very excited because I think we'll be able to accomplish a lot of our goals uh, in the next couple of years in terms of removing those barriers and, you know, getting CRNAs to practice to full extent of their training and education. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about taking care of patients, right? And that's what's so great about this job is, uh, you know, I, we have the privilege of, of removing barriers. And when we remove barriers, nurse anesthetists are put in a position to, to increase access to care, yeah. right? And to decrease costs. And that's the name of the game. And, and what we're seeing play out here in, in a big way is a market, a healthcare market, which is transforming in terms of the way that's designed, that's now truly rewarding common sense economics. Yeah. Meaning that, look, we need providers who, who have outstanding outcomes, check, that's us, uh, who, uh, who bring value to the system by increasing access to care and are flexible in the clinical environment, check, right, that's us. Yeah. And who, oh, by the way, decrease the overall cost of perioperative and anesthesia care, check, that's us. So this is really, I think, a great opportunity for us to continue to, to move down, move the ball down the field. And there's a lot of tailwinds. Certainly, we have challenges. Uh, certainly, there are people out there who do not want to see scope of practice modernization, do not want to see a model that rewards flexibility and full, you know, a fuller utilization of nurse anesthetists. But they're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> so, you know, so they can fight that fight, but we know who's going to win. So this has been great, and I, I really appreciate your expertise and your time. I'm gonna, this is a question I stole from Dave Stachowiak. So if anyone's really interested in a podcast that's focused on leadership. There's one called Coaching for Leaders. It is the best leadership podcast out there. I could not recommend it enough. And I've had the opportunity and privilege to get to know Dave a little bit better. And he has a question that he asked at the end of his podcast. And I think it's really cool. And so I'm going to steal it. So here's the question. What's one thing you've changed your mind on in the last year? You know, a lot. Um, you want to talk about my uh, homeschooling uh, perspective? <laughs> no, <laughs> so, I, I, there's too much trauma there. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, he, here's one that, that, that really um, has changed for me personally in the last year. I've always been hardwired to believe that things have to be done when people meet face-to-face, -face, right? Especially in advocacy. We've always met face-to-face. -face. You know, I've flown on multiple occasions to states to testify in person you know, when you meet with people, you get things done, right? During coronavirus, we had to find new ways to get things done without being in the same place as people that we work with. And, you know, I found that it's much more of an opportunity than a challenge. So, you know, we're still able to get things accomplished virtually. So as things are coming back, you know, to normal and state legislatures are engaged, we are finding new ways to advocate, you know, mm -hmm. remotely. We are having states hold um, lobby days remotely. We're doing visits with state legislators remotely. And I think this is something that I learned about myself. It's, it's really very doable and I enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So that's something that I changed my mind on in the last year, uh, really just because of the environment. You know, and an interesting thing is the new generation of legislators and healthcare policymakers, they are coming in thinking that this is a norm, right? I mean, if you think mm -hmm. of our kids, you know, they do everything through technology. So all of these advantage, you know, advances in technology are now allowing us to, um, to do things virtually. So that's probably one thing that really has been most impactful for me uh, in the last year in terms of, you know, what I changed my mind on. We can do it remotely, we can do it well, 
And I think it's going to be a huge opportunity for us going forward in the realm of advocacy. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Anna. That was a lot of fun. And thank you to the listeners for joining us on Moving the Needle podcast. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, share the podcast with your colleagues, and join us the next time when we talk to interesting guests about interesting topics on Moving the Needle.